1: Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from 9 o'clock, that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. My first guest this week is a man who has enjoyed successful spells as an assistant to the two great titans of modern national hunt training, Nicky Henderson and Paul Nichols, and he's put that experience to extremely good use. After a short commission in the army, where he rode several winners in the military races at Sandown, and indeed he broke records in those races, including a victory for Her Majesty the Queen. He turned his hand to training, and slowly but surely he's built up a really powerful stable. And now in Lambourne, yesterday he passed his best ever total for a season. 36 winners, and we're not even at the end of November. Promise of more riches to come. For Jamie Snowden, Jamie, good morning. Morning, Nick. How are you? And welcome to Luck on Sunday. And I've sort of been feeling the urge and the itch to get you in that chair now for a, for a good few weeks. So well has this has this season started. Has has it surprised you, or do you feel it's just the result of of gradual building to a, an inevitable position?
2: Like all these things, you can't ever assume you're going to start off quite as well as we have. And we're you know we're slightly pinching ourselves at, at, at how it has has begun really. But. Um, Certainly, over the last few years, we've really tried to um, to recruit better horses in 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 the team, and and I think you know the the, the, the last few months have really shown exactly what we've been trying to achieve.
1: And you're getting nicer horses as well. You've got a good collection of owners. Is it as simple as needing the money to spend? Needing the money to spend on the better stock? Uh,
2: I don't think it is a matter of needing the money to spend on on better stock, but like all these things that the more you spend on a horse the luckier you become mm. um you still need to be buying the right sort of horse whether it be a store horse or off the flat or or, or these Irish pointers but uh, listen we're not in the market to be spending the, the the fortunes that some people are on these Irish pointers but we're lucky enough to 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 have a few people that can go out and buy a, a potentially nice horse and and um you know obviously the the team that we built up over the last few years is 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 you know sort of detriment to all that really it's uh, it's it's all worked out brilliantly
1: and so chips Keswick has been a great supporter of yours owned your festival winner and owns the horse who was responsible for breaking your seasonal record yesterday the the banner king rebel uh, well known from from his exploits in the in the football arena how is he enjoying racing
2: i oh, loves it he absolutely loves it i think um obviously football and, and, and racing are his two two biggest biggest hobbies and and uh you know thankfully Presently, he really got the ball rolling for us back in two thousand and fifteen, and and things have gone from strength to strength since. And you know, we haven't had a, a, a another sort of Cheltenham winner quite in that league for him. Um, but hopefully, we we've got a few lined up for him.
1: So take me back to where it all started. Was training a, an inevitability for you?
2: Um, obviously, I was I was riding in point to points. You know, from the age of sixteen, and and. Uh, Riding was always the the, the the be on end all really um, university army, um, which was all great fun. But but actually, sort of riding was was where it was sort of where my heart was really. And uh, and listen, you can't carry on game going, going on being an amateur jockey for the rest of your life. And and uh, I broke my leg really quite quite badly, and uh, that sort of gave me the kick up the bum to to work out where I was going, and and training was the the obvious answer.
1: How long were you in the army for? Four years. And did you enjoy it? Loved it. And Loved it. tell me a little bit about the the service you saw in in the forces. Uh,
2: there wasn't a huge amount of uh, active service actually. I spent most of my time riding horses and playing elephant polo in Thailand, but uh, that's another story. But no, I did one year at Sandhurst, um, which was which was you know obviously great fun, hard work. But um, I was there was a there was a sort of crossroads really, I suppose, was when I was on guard duty at Sandhurst, and. Um, it was the night before the Grand Military Gold Cup at, at, at Sandown, and uh, and there was a uh, the, the commandant at Sandhurst was in the Royal Irish Regiment, mm-hmm. and they had leased a horse to to run in the Grand Military the following day, and um, and Lucy Horner, who was in the Royal Irish Regiment, was was due to ride uh, the horse, but she was stuck in Northern Ireland. There was a mortar attack, and she was stuck in Northern Ireland, couldn't get out, and uh, there was a knock on the guardroom door, and somebody said Snowden you know you're needed up in the the, uh, commandant's office you know I thought you know what have I done wrong I haven't polished my boots or whatever it might be and I rushed up there and and uh, he said you can ride a horse I was like yeah he said well you're riding in the 320 at Sandown tomorrow and um, the horse was 20 to 1 and and uh, and it won and uh, from that moment onwards the commandant basically it my get out of jail free card from Sandhurst and off I went sort of riding left right and centre and then I joined the, uh, a cavalry regiment and, um, and my, my, my colonel basically said, you know, can you go and win it for, a, for, for, for the regiment? So I went off down to Paul Nichols' and spent a year down there acting as his pupil assistant, living in the pub. And, and uh, l- luckily won, won the race that year as well and, and so things snowballed from there and I was basically race riding the whole time.
1: It strikes me you are in the perfect position to assess the relative strengths and merits of the two great training titans of our time because you had the year with Paul Nicholls and then you spent a significant spell as a, an assistant to, to Nicky Henderson as well while he had some some brilliant horses. Uh, was it a very different experience at each yard?
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, I was obviously being employed by the army when I was working down at Paul Nichols's, which um, uh, obviously had its, has it, had its advantages as well. But no, I, I love my time down at, down at Paul's. And uh, and it was because of Paul that I ended up getting the job at Nikki Henderson's, and uh, I spent four years at, at, at Nikki's at Seven Barrows, and and that was a, a, a great grounding, um, very traditional way of training horses, and and uh, I think you know history shows how how good he has been at producing trainers through 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 his hands really, and um, you know that was a, a, a great honour to be there with some some good horses, and you know hopefully that the results now are uh, sort of. Are, are, really where, where it's all come from
1: so why do you think he is as good as he is why can he sustain that level of achievement over three decades
2: it's amazing how hungry he still is you know he's still at the store sales buying buying stores looking for, looking to the future um he's uh i think both paul and nicky have got incredible work ethics and and you know they 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 do not do not stop um and uh you know it's Certainly, you know they're two trainers that that we all very much look up to and strive to, you know, follow in their footsteps. Really,
1: do they have very different methods of, say, getting horses fit, feeding horses, entering I th- horses? I
2: think um, I think ultimately they're they're both quite traditional, so they both come along sort of a similar path. They have both got hill gallops, and and uh, they they train obviously to the facilities they they, they have. Um, but but no, I suppose fundamentally they they both train us in a similar kind of way, but. Um, Paul's very good at delegating, um, you know, and I think I think that's something that I learnt a great deal from him. And uh, and Nikki's got a you know a wonderful eye for a horse and and producing a horse for, for 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 the big occasion.
1: So do you think one of Paul Nichols' strengths is man management, essentially? Very much so. So allowing his staff to take a bit more responsibility.
2: I, and I think he would he would say that himself as well. You know, I think. Um, He's very good at, uh, at, at giving somebody the responsibility to to, uh, to go about and, and and put in what what he feels are the uh, uh, he will guide you along the, the right direction, but he'll he'll very much put you up on a on a stool and let you make your own mistakes, but um, hopefully guide you in the right direction. And uh, yeah, he's he's excellent leader.
1: So, have you essentially tried to do things like you saw Nicky Henderson and Paul Nicholls do it?
2: I, very much so. I think I'd be silly not to. Um, having been to, to, to the two best trainers in the country, I'd be a fool to try and train in a, in a different kind of way. So, uh, I, as again, y- you train to the facilities that you have, but you try and follow the same sort of structures that both of those, those great trainers do.
1: So what strikes me about you is that this has been a gradual process getting to where you are now. The house feels that it's very much built on solid foundations rather than a... You know, you're not going to be a one hit one so fifty winners in a season and then bang, nothing much. Is that a is that a, a fair way of how you see it? I,
2: I I've always felt in this game that, you know, if you come in big, you probably go out big. And and uh it, you know it's we're here for the long term and, and it is you've got to build the right foundations of which to, to to, you know, make the house as it were. And and uh you know, I think we've definitely built those those foundations you know my head girl's been with us since we started and and secretary since we started moving to Lambourn and and uh, traveling head you know the, the the structure is there for for, for it all to build mm-hmm. um and yeah it's been obviously paul and nicky have been very instrumental in in learning off those kind of structures
1: and now you weren't always in Lambourne your first couple of years training were in dorset weren't they yeah and i remember trying to get hold of you in those early days and it being quite a challenge i know it's a big talking point as we approach the general election communication in remote parts of the uk but you were really up against it those first couple of years
2: yeah it was it was um very sort of very much character building those first couple of years but uh, you know when you when you work for for paul and nicky and, and you're having Cheltenham winners left right and center and you go out and you start training by yourself and you have one horse and one member of staff you know it's um it's a bit of a sort of bit of a shock and a bit of a nightmare. opener um and those first couple of years were, were, were very tricky. But actually, you know, you sort of make your own mistakes where, where nobody really sees. And and then uh, we moved up to, to Lambourne in 2011. And uh, I think our first runner from there won the Summer National. Yeah, um,
1: Was that Knight and Coombe? Knight and Coombe, mm. yeah. And he'd been he'd been a tremendous old horse who, who'd won in points and hunter chases, and you, you kept improving him. Uh, he'd been a sort of friend to you right from the beginning, hadn't he?
2: Yeah, even I managed to ride a couple of winners on him, actually. So uh, he must have been quite good.
1: <laughs> Was it... Was it fun, the early part of it as well? Though in a sort of buccaneering, fact-finding way. Do you look back on it now fondly?
2: Oh, very much so. Those first couple of years, they were they were they were tough, obviously. But um, as I said, we've still got you know the the same team that that, that started from there, and uh, you know we celebrated the winners I you bet. know wholeheartedly, and and uh, the pub was you know part of the village, and it was all it was it was yeah it was great. It was hard work, um, not a lot of um, results really, but. Uh, it certainly taught us a few lessons of, of of how to how to progress from there, and and uh, you know thankfully it seems to be working.
1: Was it possible then really to think beyond the end of the next week?
2: No, and and listen, you know yourself, setting up any business, you've you've got to think about today, and today looks after you know tomorrow, as it were, and and uh, yeah, it was it was it was. It was It was hard, but um, you know, you look at where we are now and where we've come from, and you know, it's uh, it's very rewarding. But obviously, you can't sit still, and you've got to keep driving forward.
0: Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Al Basti Dubai.
1: Yeah, jumping is well and truly back, though it was great to see Asheen Murphy winning the Japan Cup there on Suave Richard. You could see from his almost contorted expression on his face as he passed the post exactly how much it meant to him. His alliance with Japanese racing has been such a fruitful one with the exploits of Deirdre, and this has just capped it. So all power to a man who's brought so much to British flat racing. In the last 12, 24 months. I'm delighted to say I am rejoined by Jamie Snowden, who's enjoying his best ever season. We can now say that officially, <laughs> best ever season all told. We're only halfway through. And Emmett Kennedy, uh, Pod Maestro. <laughs> I, I introduced you as last night when I was teeing up the show. I think that, that's fair enough. Final Fellow podcast going well?
3: Yeah, thank God. Uh, we're about to make an announcement. I would love to make it today, but uh, we can't fully, but it's all done. So the podcast is about to become bigger than it's ever been before. Um, We had our most listeners ever last year and we've already beaten that. We beat it by August actually, which was incredible. It's amazing to me the amount of people that that listen to the show and we're blessed that we have such a loyal audience, but uh, we're about to become... A little bit more powerful, so hopefully people will be excited about that.
1: Yeah, I think it's amazing to many of us. But yes, you're still uh, you're <laughs> you're still getting, getting away with it. it. You're still getting away with it. They'll find you out sooner or later. Uh, you, are you going to be filmed like Brexit Cast? So you no, you can no longer do it in your underpants.
3: Does anybody? Well, first of all, contrary to many claims, I do not record the final foreign podcast in my underpants pajamas. Yes, underpants. No. Uh, as for the Brexit Cast comparison. It's fine, it's, it's great to be here, it's high-definition TV, but do you really want this face for radio on camera all of the time? I'm not entirely certain.
1: Well, as, as Jamie pointed out as you walked into the studio, you are a much svelter figure than, than the last time I saw you.
3: Yeah, when I had a... I was described as the fat controller at Royal Ascot with the top hat on. Uh, yeah, 15 and a half stone down to 11 and a half stone, so...
1: Don't tell me it was just one Twitter troll who sparked a four-stone weight one troll. Well, there you are, get stuck in. Oh, this is what's to get all the carbs back, as if this yep. is a re. Well, this is the, the last temptation of Emmett Kennedy. No, I'm
3: leaving it there for now. You're I doing. can
1: confirm, though, that they are indeed real. Right. let uh, not cr- Let's crack on and talk about yesterday's racing because we might have had two small field races, Jamie, but they were two serious races. And the, the Ascot Clash, I thought, had. Everything you wanted it to it was Nichols against Henderson, it was the established horse, everybody's favorite against not the young pretender but the coming force over an intermediate distance and a really absorbing race as well
2: it was, and you just it just goes to show that you don't need a big field to have a good race and I think um I think both Haydock and Ascot showed that you know you had um you had the the, the old the older boy at Ascot with the young pretender uh, uh, at Haydock with the young pretender. And then at Ascot, you had the, the Clash of the Titans, as it were. And, um, you know, they were both small fields, but but great races.
1: Yeah, the two highest-rated steeplechasers trained in Britain going into yesterday, Altior and Surname. And there were plenty of people who didn't believe that Surname should be rated a pound higher than Altior, but I suspect that the BHA's head of steeplechase handicapping was one of the happier people
3: yesterday. I'd say he was punching the air with delight yesterday. We, we were saying off-air that... Surname's almost like a villain in racing at at this point because all of his performances seem to come at Ascot, and he was indeed crowned high straight to chaser in training last season. But what he did yesterday was absolutely superb. In terms of field sizes, I think we make an awful lot of this, and for me it's quality over quantity, as long as you've got high-class horses. And we had mostly the right horses yesterday, but that matchup at, at Ascot was something else. The bullishness behind Altior beforehand and particularly from Nicky in the week, and then the betting. There's no way I could have seen him go off 3-1 to one on uh, and, and to see surname drift in the manner that he did. And I thought Paul Nichols' comments afterwards were really interesting. He, he talked that, about the fact that it was as emotional for him as Cotto Starr's fifth Betfair mm-hmm. chase, which is a remarkable thing to say because, one, you're comparing him to the greatest horse that I've ever seen over fences. And secondly, it does give you a demonstration of how important this horse is to him. And Cotto went from Tinkle Creek winning to King George. And that's what this horse is going to attempt now, going from 2-mile-4 to, uh, to the King George. And it seems as though the Nichols team are, are supremely confident. But I wouldn't be dishing out too many excuses for Altior yesterday. I think he was just beaten by the better horse who, for a change, won first time out.
1: Well, I'll get Jamie's perspective on that in just a few moments time. But let's hear from, from Paul, because he's on the, on the line now. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Nick. I don't know. You were probably listening to what Emmett was saying there, and it, it seems like a good a good starting point. Just to to really ask you why yesterday was
4: so important to you and your your team. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we 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 knew we got him improved from the two runs in in the, in the in the spring there at Ascot, and the second run in particular, when he won the Grade One, beating the horses he did particularly for Tate Pulitzer, who I think ran his race that day, he beat him 7, 18 lengths, he was then second in the champion chase, so he finished second in the Ryanair, they were good horses. We just needed him to reproduce that, That, and I felt if he did, that he was going to be very hard to beat.
1: And uh, it,
4: it's such a, an engaging clash
1: between two horses like that as well, one that hasn't been beaten for so long and is a huge public favourite, and another one that's that's on the way up. And it, it takes it almost takes more of an effort for people to to believe, essentially, in your horse. So there must have been a certain amount of vindication, wasn't there?
4: Yeah, I just think that Ascot form was the best performance of last season. Um, you know, all those good horses just didn't run ordinarily on one day. There were some good horses beaten miles by him, and the fo- handicapper was right, wasn't he? He had them rated pound apart, and they'd probably be a couple of three-pound apart now. He's just a very, very good horse. I mean, Altior has been an ex- supreme champion. He, you know, To win the races he's, he's done in succession 19 on the trot just shows what an amazing horse he's been and he's been so good for racing but eventually they all get beat. Big mm. Buck's won 18 on the trot and he got beat. It just happened to the younger horses and, and obviously surname is, as we've always thought but took a while to get there, a very special horse. Why Why did it take a while to get there? What's been
1: the work in progress with well, him? Just talk me through I, the progression a little bit.
4: I don't, I'm not really sure. I, I mean his hurdle runs for us were dire. He used to just getting such a stress saddling him up and then he'd go down to the start flat out and then he'd run the first mile on one breath basically take a breath choke and just run terrible and so it was a case of trying to get him to relax and the two runs last autumn were a bit underwhelming because he just literally bolted down to the start and just went flat out for a mile and stopped and for whatever reason after that we just changed our routine and tried to get him to settle and back Christmas time last year he just suddenly decided well I I don't know why, he just relaxed and it was suddenly a different horse and we can now train him normally. For example, we took him to Wincanton two weeks ago and had a spin around that, which you'd never have dreamt of doing before. And it's like having two different horses from, the, from you know, 12 months ago to now. And that's why, you know, I was reading about, oh, his three runs, first time out, the last three years were very underwhelming. Well, I was, that was never going to be the case this time because we were just dealing with a completely different horse who's now mature mentally and physically. And he's a big unit, isn't he, when you stand up to him? He's a big, big horse. Yeah, and these horses need time. He's only a seven-year-old, you know. We forget the young horses in, in years gone by, you know, they'd only be just starting their careers. And he's just needed all of that time, as I said, to mentally come right and more off, more not physically and, and, and take the training so we can get him into the shape he's in yesterday. Would you be quite confident of him being as good at three miles around Campton? Well, I mean, his three runs at Ascot, which, in especially yesterday, stamina was a forte. He just keeps galloping. And I think if you get two-mile fire around Asker on soft ground and keep galloping, I don't think Kempton would be a problem at all. I I mean, it's not a worry at all, actually. I think I get it without any bother at all. I was always worried about Politologue because he was a two-miler. I suspect Nicky might well be with with Altior, but, you know, the one thing this horse does is stay, and that's what's been winning his races, and I, I think it'll be absolutely perfect for him, especially around Kempton.
1: And uh, Harry Cobden, your your rider, said yesterday it would be a bit of a head-scratcher to decide whether to ride him or the defending champion, Klandé Zobo, who Mm. has slightly become the forgotten horse of of the last few weeks. I'll come to him in a moment. Is it going to be a difficult choice for him or not, do you think, really?
4: <laughs> he's got to think about that. And there's no point, as I've said to Harry, don't even think about it for a month because you don't want to make plans now because both horses have got to get there. You know, they've got to be in good form. We've got to look at the ground and one thing and another. So we'll decide near the time. But um, yeah, of course, it's difficult, you know, because he's, he's, one's a reigning champ and one's, you know, a very, very smart horse uh, who's on the up. So, you know, he'll have to work that out in his mind, but I'm sure he will. Hey, his, his past record at choosing between ones he has to choose between is pretty good, isn't it? he's a, he's, a, he's a pretty canny thinker. Yeah, well, he was adamant this time last year after Clan had run in the bet Chase, and Politologa had just wanted to ask it that he was going to ride Clan because he felt he would stay. He wasn't so sure yesterday, I know that. So um, he's going to have to think about it long and hard. And of course, as I said, we've got to get both horses in a month's time, fit and well before we make a plan.
1: And how is Clan Dezobo?
4: He's fine. He's come out of that race really well. It looks fantastic. He's tickling along, and he won't be too, you know, he he he, he won't be too far behind. The two horses are in front of him in the betting, in, in, in um, surname and Lost in Translation, you know, the a suit him and a good galloper suit him, and you know he, he's in good shape. And I think he's improved on last year, so it'll be interesting.
1: You had Frodon run in the in the Lost in Translation yeah. race yesterday. What did you make of the race as a whole?
4: It's surprising. It was quite a slow time. I believe it was slower than the uh, one of the handicaps earlier on. Lost in tra- Translation travels well and won well and outstayed. Um, Ruston, my Prodon at that level doesn't really get three and a quarter miles, so we'll just go back and trip. He probably wants an easy three, or or, or back and trip, and just be a bit more aggressive with him. So we'll probably change tack with him.
1: But you ha- were you happy enough
4: with him for yes? He of ran the well. He ran a tidy race, and Brian had just said, you know, once he, he was beat, she looked after him. But it, it, she said at that level, he doesn't really get three three mile one and a half. He's better off just bowling along and being aggressive over a little bit shorter.
1: And uh, Caitlin got his got his due reward yesterday with a little bit of help from the handicap. We're going to talk about that. Oh. In a little while, but the way
4: he won yesterday, it, is he going right the way to, to graded level? A, astonishing improvement in him as well. Again, he's a seven-year-old. He's physically as good as I've ever seen. I actually texted Cathy Stewart Thursday night and said to him, "Said, to her, that's the best I've ever seen him work this morning. The best he's ever looked. He's just like a different animal." And to be honest with you, I think he'd have won with six pound more yesterday if he hadn't. You know, if the weights were, if they were at levels yesterday, he was so superior yesterday. Um, Obviously, you know, for what happened last time, everyone has their opinions. But he he was very progressive yesterday, and um, yeah. you know, he obviously Diego had top weight and had six pound more, um, but um, Cape Town was very good. Would you think of sliding him into a tingle creek? Um, uh, it's it, something has crossed my mind because he he wouldn't mind soft ground, whereas Diego definitely wants it better. Um, and then of course, there is the, the race at Kempton Day after Boxing Day, the um, Desert Orchid. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth sticking in a graded race because just when they start getting progressive, I, I was just thought well, yesterday the way he travelled and jumped, he's definitely worth running in a decent race at some stage.
1: Uh, Paul, it was I, I I know you well enough to know that you like to celebrate these big winners. There's no point there's no point leaving the track without without um, letting your hair down a little bit. And you posted this on Twitter last night, so I didn't think you'd mind sharing it. But it, it, it looks like it looks like you gave it gave it the full works
4: yesterday evening. Well, the Dellahey family had a fantastic party in their box, and quite right they should celebrate. Amazingly enough, I got a load of abuse on Twitter for last night for so say um, being unrespectful, which made me made me laugh even more. But you know, we just they just enjoy the game, and you know, big winners like that count. and um, you know, the Delahaye family put an awful lot into the race, and, you know, quite right, we all celebrated afterward and thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, good for you. Um, yeah. You know, because- as I said, you know, no disrespect whatsoever. is a fantastic horse. He's been an absolutely fantastic horse. He actually ran very, very well yesterday, and Shaw Connections are proud of him, and he'll soon be back winning. Thank you, Paul, very much indeed. Okay, Nick. Cheers, chap. Paul Nichols,
1: champion trainer, and uh, you saw a lot of why he's champion trainer there, didn't you? both in terms of what he was saying and you know just talking a little bit at the end there about about you know you want to you want to let it all out when you've done something good
2: oh listen we we took our team down to the pub last night and had a good few beers in there it's you've got to enjoy the good times because um you know as we all know there's a banana skin around round, round round the corner so uh you've got to enjoy the good times and it's very much part of you know it's a big team effort whether it's you know the owners or, or the staff back at home and you got to enjoy the good days, definitely.
1: And I dare say there are times when you wake up in the morning and think, "I don't really want to speak to such and such a journalist. I don't want, really want this film crew coming around. But you know now that it's the immediacy of the job and it's part of the game, and you have to communicate. I think, I
2: think for our generation, certainly, we we don't think, or, you know, we don't think along those lines. We we go with it. You yeah. know, I suppose the older generation, perhaps. Um, media has become such a big part of it and, and you know, perhaps a bit more intrusive for, 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 the, for, for the older generation. But for our lot, it's, it's part of the game.
1: But for the, the immediacy of that, so putting those celebration shots, for example, on, on Twitter, you would have been celebrating like that 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. But the fact that you, you're sharing it with people shouldn't necessarily be seen as a bad thing. I, it? Don't I, mean,
3: about, no, I don't think it's a bad thing. Nobody
1: died, did they? I mean, how can it be disrespectful? You can't disrespect a horse. They it's,
3: don't. it's almost as though the Altior fans who took offence to that just wanted to have a pop at him. And he has nothing to be sorry for whatsoever. The amount of work that, that they do, and there was a documentary released about Paul Nichols and the team recently during the week. The amount of work that, that you guys do day in, day out, when you get a big win mm. like that, and you're stopping racing's superstar Altior who has been unbeaten since the word Brexit came into the lexicon that's a huge achievement but he's also done it incredibly well mm. of course you're going to celebrate it's good of him that he would actually take the time to tweet out that video and say look at how delighted we are because he's interacting with his fans to then get blowback for that is preposterous
1: yeah I mean nobody likes a bad loser but nobody likes a bad winner by, by the same token uh, just just on, on Altior, Jamie, what was, your, what was your gut feeling yesterday on his performance?
2: Well, I think, firstly, it was a brilliant ride from Harry Cobden. I thought, that, that I thought he set the fractions right. They obviously went a decent gallop. And, and the way he threw him at the last couple of fences, mm. was, it, it was a joy to watch. Um, uh, on the day, Altior was beaten by a, a better horse um, in, in, in Cernay's backyard. Um, he still ran a good race. Um, it's very tricky. You can't say he didn't stay. No, because um, he
1: was closing again a little bit he in was. the last 100 yards. He
2: was. Um, he also, watching the race, I thought Dan the Swinney Bottom, and I thought he, he looked like he might just be beaten, but he hit that slightly flat spot that, that, that he does it over mm. two miles as well, doesn't he? There, there are times over two miles you think, actually, is he beaten here? And he, he then sort of turbo kicks in and he goes away and wins. So uh, you can't say it was stamina that beat him yesterday. It was, I think he was just beaten by a better horse on the, on, on the day
1: and a horse who wasn't going to stop. And quite often in those two-mile races, he's powering on, gives him the impression of looking like a turbocharger's kicking in, and the horses who've done too much running are stopping.
3: I was surprised that some of the analysis of his performance yesterday was, oh, that's not the Altior that we normally see. It's the Altior that we've seen in the last two champion chases. Like, he does come off the bridle, he does hit a bit of a flat spot, but that high chaparral, flat speed, then, and the overall class that he has, once he jumps the final obstacle, he just powers up the hill. Or wherever it is he is, he will crush his opposition. He doesn't always do it easily, but he'll go and win. Yesterday, I think I completely agree with Jamie, it was a brilliant ride mm. from, from Harry Cobden. Uh, my initial reaction was, non stare go straight back to two miles, and go for a third champion chase. But Nicky's comments seem to be, better ground at Kempton, and it's almost as though they've committed and they're, they're going to go for it, which I applaud, because it would be so much simpler to go back to the two-mile division.
1: In which case, let's have a look at the horse he's likely to take on at Kempton, lost in translation, who got the better of Bristol-Demay in the Betfair chase. bristol de May is brilliant round Haydock. This is the only time he's been beaten over fences at Haydock, and he's gone down producing, well, very close to his, his very best, I would have thought. Uh, Robbie Powell was just masterful on the winner, wasn't he, Jamie?
2: Yeah, it was, it was wonderful listening to, to, to Robbie's immediate interview when he was walking back into the window's enclosure and he, and he said, uh, he said, I got there too soon. He said it, it wasn't a very good ride at all. He was sort of criticising himself. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, he's, he's riding brilliantly, isn't he? Um, there would be very few jockeys riding better than him at, at, at this precise moment.
1: And just the way he's, the way he's kidding the horse into the race at the end of a really, really gruelling... You know, top class, grade one, staying chase is, is lovely to watch.
2: I think, you know, a, a, as Robbie sort of uh, mentioned, you know, the, the looming upside three out, upside Bristol's demise, you know, in his own backyard, as it were, was a, was a recipe for, for, for disaster. But I think the fact that Lost in Translation then came out on top at the end um, shows that he's got the class, um, he's got the speed, and he's got the stamina. So I think he's a, a, a very exciting young horse.
1: So there you are. It's the obvious question. Surname or Lost in Translation in the King George Emmett or neither? I think it's a
3: fascinating renewal. Uh, there's That's pl- not an answer. There's plenty of others to come That's into it. That's four wasted words. That's ten, ten wasted <laughs> words there's, now. there's plenty of other contenders to come in as well. I'd favour Lost in Translation. We know he stays. Robbie Powers loved this horse since he was a novice hurdler, going back over older quotes. That was only his second ever win at Haydock. Earlier he landed the Big Gamble, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. He gave him... He gave the opposition at least seven lengths in the first circuit. He's ridden them ice cold. He's made two mistakes at the last, and he still managed to pull away from a horse, as you said, who had a four from four perfect record at Haydock. This is a serious, serious horse. And he was on a lot of people's names, but if the, if you look at the betting now and you see surname is shortest five to two, and he's four to one, yeah. I'll take Lost in Translation all day.
1: We'll have a look at the King George betting as well. It's just worth pointing out, though, and we were discussing this earlier. He almost had to win because. There's been so much written about him since September, October. He was all over the front of the racing post. I'm thinking, is this the horse that Deffy De Soy was like, routinely beating last season? And there was so much talk about him, and the trainer talked about him so much, he kind of had to deliver, didn't he?
2: Ah, As we know, it's not all about one race, is it? And, um, and he's obviously got, uh, got, got bigger targets ahead of, ahead of him. But uh, the fact that Deffy De Soy came out and won at Cheltenham so, so well last weekend was a, was a big boost, and, um, and certainly he's the, young, he's the young kid on the block.
1: Surname 5-2 to two with Betfair for the King George, lost in Translation 3, Klanders last year's winner 5. I think Klanders will run another bold race, but I can't imagine Harry Cobden's going to get off surname, can you?
3: I would imagine Briny Frost is rubbing her hands with delight, because she's going to have a fantastic force to, to ride in that race now.
1: Well, if... If indeed it is it is her that has given the ride, of course there are other potential options there are, out there.
3: There are. I suspect that she'll push hard and, and she'll be given her due reward. Um, I, I can't see how Altior can close the gap. I don't see why three miles, and we have no idea what the ground is going to be like, but I, I don't see how he turns the tables on Surname. Surname's just different class. And, and I also wouldn't like to just dwell on the fact that it's Ascot, that these performances have come out. They've both had wind operations. They're both entitled to improve. I know Nikki was talking about the fact that Altior will come on for the run. It's old surname by the basis of what Paul has just told us. I just think that Lost in Translation is an old-fashioned chaser. And of of the current crop, the fact that Ken Boy unfortunately, is wrapped up in, mm. in red tape, I'd be... Leaning more towards him. Well, we're going to talk about
1: syndicate ownerships later when we get to talking points and, and the Kenboy situation. But it, it must be remembered, Jamie, that we didn't have an Irish chaser, Irish train chaser, in the Betfair Chase yesterday. We didn't have an Irish train chaser in the in the Christie Chase. And Willie Mullins has got these excellent staying chasers waiting in the wings. So it, it'll be I interesting th- to see whether he, he gets anything into the King. George. Well, it was lovely
2: to see Footpad winning so yes. well in the week. Actually, um, obviously, a, a, an Arkle winner from from the past and. Um, I know Daryl loves the the horse. I think he's won three times on him over fences now. And um, uh, he'll be a fascinating horse should he come over the King
1: George as well. Absolutely. You'd certainly put him in the mix. Shaq Ampois is a horse we haven't seen yet this season, but was brilliant at the end of last year.
3: I would put Dovan into the mix. We saw him on Thursday and he looked right back to his best. Hopefully he can continue that progression because the one thing you would say about Altior is it's amazing that he's maintained that consistency and won four Cheltenham Festival races consecutively and managed to, to rack up that, that winning sequence um, because Dovan, you could have argued, was the more talented of the two and he's been plagued by injury, but he looks like he's back on track and given Rich Richie's affinity for Kempton on Boxing Day, I wouldn't be too surprised if Saldier came over for the Christmas hurdle and Dover and lined up in in the King George and that would be really interesting.
1: Yeah, and we saw it in, in years gone by, we had Votor just touched off in the, in the King George oh. by by Q-Cop. but I it would be great wouldn't it if if more Irish horses were coming over for for these races, the like of yesterday's race and the uh, and the King George.
2: I, I think history will say that they they don't come over too early in the season, do they? And and um I am sure I'm sure they'll come over for the King George and and uh, and then obviously Cheltenham. But um, uh, I don't think we should be too worried about the small runner affairs in those two races yesterday. It was, you know They were great races.
3: Willie wasn't afraid to run Faheen and any Power in the no. UK early in the season. Things have somewhat changed. Gordon Elliott has become a real force. And, and maybe he wants to aim all of his ammo in Ireland to ensure that he becomes champion trainer again. Uh, but also, I suspect that no matter who you are as an owner, Graham Wiley, Rich Ritchie... JP McManus, if you're having a conversation with Gordon Elliott, Jessica Harrington, Willie Mullins, and they say to you, I don't want to go to Haydock. I do not want to run on heavy ground and sacrifice what could be a Gold Cup winning season. Let's go to Leopardstown. Let's take in the John Durkin over a shorter trip. Let's go for the Gold Cup. We've got the Dublin Racing Festival as well. There's so many big races in Ireland now than there ever were before. That you can campaign and target, and I suspect that's what the Irish trainers want to do, and even the allure of the million pound treble bonus just right. isn't enough
1: yeah that I think that is the key you know what, what is that million pound bonus doing is it getting enough is it getting enough people wanting to have a go nope. and are there enough horses to justify its existence
3: not in not from the Irish perspective of things and it's just because look over over the last few years we've seen the likes of Card and Bristol de May who have demolished the fields there so you're going to kick yourself if, if you've listened to your owner because of the prize money and you've mapped out a plan and the plan was to start quietly. Like Album Photo, the defending champion, is going to start at Tremor on New Year's Day. Kenboy, if they can sort things out, will, will start off in the Savills chase. That's where Delta Works going to go next as well. Connections just don't want to take that risk. They, they want to stay at home where there's plenty of prize money and, and big prestigious, prestigious races to run in.
0: Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by al basti Dubai.
1: Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. And once again, during the talking points, the subject of equine welfare came up. And wherever you are in the world, this is the most pertinent subject in racing at the moment, whether it be Santa Anita and the scrutiny in Californian racing, whether it be the horses scratched before the Melbourne Cup that we spoke about with Huey Morrison a few weeks ago, whether it be about parties putting in their manifestos just weeks ahead of the general election that racing needs an independent welfare and regulatory body without the borders of the sport. It just goes to show you that the sport is constantly under threat and that horses need to be looked after as best possible. Yet, within that, there are always going to be divisions between the sports regulators around the world and the practitioners, and somehow the twain have to meet to agree the best way forward. And with that in mind, my special guest this week is an eminent veterinarian who's practised across the world and is now a partner at the deeply respected Rossdale's Veterinary Practice in Newmarket and has been... Uh, for a couple of decades now he's a pioneer in his field he has published uh, eminent work on the subject he is pete rams and pete good morning
0: thank you Nick. thanks for the introduction i i liked your tweet forthright which usually means it's code for mouthy but um (laughs) yeah yeah uh it's good to be on um it's not usually the place for a vet to step out of private practice and and come into the public sphere but Mm. um yeah thank you for the invitation
1: but i think more and more and certainly from what I've experienced in, in the US and, and mm. anecdotally from, from Australia, mm. the veterinary community is having to come out mm. more and more and mm-hmm. talk and explain yeah. and talk people through things that would have been either anathema to them 10 years mm-hmm. ago or actually just not that interesting to them. Yeah, yeah. People are interested in yeah, what you do, aren't they? Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it's difficult for the public to... And the public, some of these issues are things that even the experts um, spend a long time debating and have nuanced views on, but... Uh, you know it's difficult to get across all points to the public the public have a great thirst for for knowledge in this area and and in the states they do it particularly well they some of those vets have become very mm. prominent figures in the public eye and that's needed you know particularly when you're dealing with situations like injuries on on you know on on race day
1: so would you like to see a bit more of that here i know itv experimented with it for a little while so sort of mm. having an almost almost resident vet what do you think the
0: right balance to strike oh, God. is i mean i personally i'd dread being involved you know it's it's a lot of pressure and uh, uh, but I think maybe it should be considered I I think um, I think certainly there needs to be a more uh, constructive and cohesive way for um, uh, racing vets or vets that um, are at the front line um, and represent trainers um, and, and really are the experts in their field to interact with both the regulator and the, and the public. I mean, I think that needs to happen in the past. It's been, you know, we'll get a phone call from the racing post or something for a quote, you know, from an individual veterinary surgeon to quote on a big issue. And I think there's a, probably a better way forward than, than what we've been doing so far, you know?
1: How, as you see it now, November 2019, mm-hmm. How good a job do you think the BHA does in regulating the sport from a veterinary perspective?
0: Um, the the problem, I mean, I think we're all used to, particularly in this country, um, uh, people who govern us are not particularly uh, good at some things. And we're all used to um, bumps on the road with regulations that come in that are flawed. And, and we have, a you know, people aren't always aware, but there's always a, a, a low-level sort of... Um, Background conversation that we have with the BHA to tweak some of these rules to make them fit for purpose, um, and we're all used to those sorts of things. Uh, there are there are some when big issues arise, um, and and some of the big issues that have risen, um, you know, in the recent period, um, speak to the fact that the BHA haven't consulted properly with the veterinary community. Now they have a BHA veterinary committee, but I think if you were to ask both present and past members of that committee how that consultation process goes it it, there's there's a general feeling that the bha don't um seek consult meaningful consultation most of the time and when they do often that consultation is with a group of people who don't then have the time or necessarily the contacts to to feed out to the, the industry at large and i think that can be improved and and that's better for all of us, that's better for not, not just us as practicing vets and trainers and, and for equine welfare, but that's better for, for the BHA, you know. To have these things that could brew into legal spats mm-hmm. is regrettable, you know, no one wants to see things like that go go onto the front pages of newspapers.
1: Because you, as, as I was to say, as a frontline vet, someone mm. who's working closely with trainers have an incredibly important role, I'm guessing, to, uh, to almost be the, the link between mm the sort of mm. veterinary authorities and, and your clients, yet understandably the BHA would be suspicious of involving yeah, that link too much, because sure. you've got a vested interest.
0: Yeah, it's true, and, and you could say um, it's quite right for the regulator, and, and this is why there are independent um, members of boards both within the veterinary world and in the regulatory world and in the medical world. Um, you can't be seen to be too close or in bed with, with the vets that are treating these animals, and I can understand that, particularly when betting's is involved. Um, but we're in a very small industry, you know, it, you have to rely on veterinary ethics and, and you know, as a member of a very large practice um, we confront these things all the time, you know, it's currently sales season and I might be asked to vet a horse that's been looked after by one of my colleagues who you know, has looked after it for, you know, did it, da da da, da, da and, and that information security that all comes down to professional integrity and I think uh, you know, for the not just the BHA, but but worldwide, the, the regulators I think have to recognise that the the bulk of expertise in a lot of these areas. So you know the pertinent things at the moment are, are um, risk analysis for fracture. You know the bulk of expertise is in the private sector; it's not in the regulatory sector. You would never think to fill a conference um, list of speakers looking into risk assessment of the thoroughbred fetlock with people. From the regulatory world, you know the, the, the experts are in the private field, and unless you engage with those people, you know there needs to be a meeting, like you say, between the regulatory side and the clinical side, because you know together we can work on these problems very well. But but apart, it just becomes lobbing hand grenades at each other, as one of my trainers puts it. So,
1: and I know in, in many respects you are, you know, you want some conciliation here, mm. but you've you've tossed a couple of. Social media grenades in the sure. in the direction of the sure. of of the regulator just to just to mm. uh, out of frustration
0: yeah i'm yeah, guessing it, it is out of frustration yeah when
1: we when we had the the flu situation mm. the equine flu situation mm. the mm. which which shut down racing, mm. you were really quite um, mm. outspoken on on the way the b h a handled that now mm. looking back retrospectively, do you think ultimately they did their job okay
0: ah uh, look. It's a tough call, and they had to make a decision very rapidly, um, and, and I, in a way, I, I don't want to dwell on the past, and, mm. and um, I think there's a lot to we need to deal, confront with the future, but sure. looking back at the flu, I still maintain, and, and it, I would say it's the majority opinion, not just amongst new market vets, but amongst the wider um, worldwide thoroughbred um, veterinary community, that shutting down racing was the wrong thing to have done, and um, you know, it's the best vaccinated population of horses in the world. And the whole reason vaccination was brought in was to prevent the loss of racing days. And also some of the things that followed on from the, the, you know, the swabbing process and the quarantine, when you actually dig down into, you know, I don't want to go into details, but when you dig down into it, there was clearly a recognition that maybe the BHA had bitten off more than they could chew and let things simmer down and, and, and disappear. And as it turns, you know, it in the middle of the crisis, none of us knew whether we were going to face a year of coughing horses and poor performing yards and whatever. That was all potentially in front of us. But and no we, racing. And no racing. Yeah, potentially going on and on and on. And, and um, you know, it's an endemic disease. And, and we're all used to, you know, those of us who are getting long enough in the tooth to have experienced previous outbreaks of respiratory problems, including flu, knew that we were probably due another one. And as it turns out, looking back with hindsight at the season, Newmarket has been a very healthy set of yards. I mean, it, it, it's been one of the healthiest years for, you know, for the last decade. So it hasn't turned into a, a you know, and, and the BHA may say, well, we shut it down and, you know, that, that was the result. But actually, when you look at the scientific basis of or the scientific follow through of the swabbing and quarantine procedures. No, I, I still maintain my position. That, the, that we should have carried on? Yeah, that's my position, yeah. yeah, absolutely, And not just mine, you know, I'm not a lone voice. I know I'm the lone voice on Twitter, but it, it is that I, I was getting a lot of support from very eminent uh, veterinary surgeons around the around the world, really.
1: Looking at the the Marmello case that you alluded I mean, to there uh, in yeah. terms of pre-race scanning, how big an issue could this become for racing internationally?
0: Well, I think this this is really the big thing going forward. So, you know, all the you know even the flu thing pales into insignificance um, in my view. Um, the regulators are under huge pressure to prevent race race day injury. I mean, uh, in a way, the foot, I mean, going back to animal welfare. I mean, I'm very much a person who believes that the way an animal lives is more important than how it dies, and a you know a racetrack fatality is not necessarily, if you view it through an ethical perspective is not necessarily a, a huge welfare problem. Problem, It's terrible for connections, it's obviously terrible for the horse and, um, and, and but it can
1: be visually shocking. Visually shocking and the imagery and the optics are, are absolutely, bad.
0: absolutely, we agree on all of those things but um, you cannot have an attitude that even one fracture is too many with racing because you cannot prevent all fractures and you can't prevent horses breaking legs when they gallop around a paddock at home when they're turned out and um, you know what we need to do is minimize serious injury and we've made great strides in that but there's still more work to do I think there should be a very positive message you know Britain particularly I get to travel around the world and see the way um, other jurisdictions operate and the way other vets work in their yards and I always come back to Britain and think god we've got it really spot on here you know we've got Um, you know it's no longer sort of James Herriot days it's you know of course that exists and I've worked in the West Country but um, you know people driving around one-man bands does exist but the majority of racehorses in Britain are cared for by multidisciplinary teams of, of experts in their field and people who are more likely to be reading journal papers at night and going to conferences than you know down the pub so you know the the you know, the fact is, we look after our resources in Britain very well, and we've got quite a low injury rate um, worldwide. But that can be improved, I think, with some sensible measures long term. Luck on Sunday, proudly
1: sponsored by Al Basti Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday. The program that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.